they said they would not be around anymore. They would not have survived as an organization. And when I asked them about the value for this big shift, and some of them give me some monetary values, some numbers, such as, oh, you get 10 extra percent of the value of an organization, or you get extra 15 to 25% of revenue, or you just get extra millions or billions of pounds <laughs> or dollars or euros. But they also gave me a qualitative like a human benefit, saying it's a difference between life and death. It's a difference between a mere existence and true happiness. And that is priceless. Hello, and welcome to another episode of Learning Rewired, where leaders are challenged to rethink what, how, and why they and their organizations learn. Learning Rewired is a collection of interviews and conversations with leading minds and progressive thinkers in the multiple domains influencing personal and organizational transformation. Learning Rewired is proudly presented by Headspring as a free contribution to fostering cultures of continuous learning. I'm your host, Bevan Rees. The conventional way of doing business no longer works. The financial crash, corporate scandals, environmental crises, from climate change to plastic waste in the oceans, have caused leading business thinkers to consider new approaches to commerce. Until recently, it was assumed that the business interest was on a collision course with social and environmental concerns. Yet, recent research findings challenge this assumption. It turns out that you can secure superior financial returns through highly engaged staff displaying social and environmental responsibility. These are the words of Vladka Hlupic, Professor of Leadership and Organizational Transformation at Holt Astridge Executive Education, Global Faculty Member of Headspring, and Founder and CEO of Management Shift Consulting. Vladka is an internationally awarded thought leader, and her latest book is the groundbreaking Humane Capital, How to Create a Management Shift to Transform Performance and Profit. Welcome, Vladka. Thank you. Vladka, perhaps it's a good place to start with a quote from your book. No matter how strong the evidence, there is extreme skepticism that one can combine humane management and superior shareholder returns. Generations of managers have grown up with the belief that there is always a trade-off, that being ruthless or dictatorial is the real way to boost profits, and that treating employees well is a luxury. So perhaps... That's a good place to start. I mean, one of the things that intrigued me in the title of your book, Vladka, is, is the final E, humane capital. We hear a lot about human capital. What is the difference between human capital and humane capital? And how does it redefine the way managers see the management of human beings? I think there's a big difference in that one E at the end of mm -hmm. the first word that you mentioned. So traditionally, we hear about human capital, which is about the skills and the knowledge um, that employees or people will have in organization. But most importantly, it's about the cost to the organization as well. Mm -hmm. Some organizations that are a bit more progressive will see it as a value as well. But in majority of traditional organizations, human capital will be looked at as a replenishable resource or a cost on a spreadsheet. Now, humane capital is different because this is about seeing people as sources of value creation. It's about uh, people and organizations that are grounded in human approaches and humane values, which is all about focusing on people 
purpose, compassion and collaboration and all these components that really make organizations perform well and not just create good for the shareholders, but for all stakeholders, which allows organizations to be seen as a force for good in the society. And this is how it should be. Mm-hmm. What I'm hearing there is that, I mean, let's take the example of organizations to whom it's not necessarily important to be seen as a force for good in society. It's still critical to focus on this kind of area of development in order to achieve positive business outcomes? Absolutely. I have seen a lot of evidence through decades of my research and research that other, other scholars have conducted that companies that just focus on numbers and short-term profit maximization and that neglect people and collaboration and and purpose, uh, they cannot sustain their performance on a long-term basis. But for companies that focus on people, their collaboration, the way they work together, their purpose, for those companies on a more longer-term basis, numbers will take care of themselves. So they will achieve that sustainable performance, not just in terms of numbers, in terms of profit, revenues, KPIs, but they will be forced for good and they will, ha- they will be more happier, more purposeful, more productive, more engaging places, which will then be a win-win-win for everybody. And they will also take better care of the environment and there will be this force for good that I mentioned. Mm-hmm. So is there a historical difference between the way that companies used to operate in a very profit-motive-driven way and now? Is this particularly relevant now or is the argument that this has always been true of business or is this now especially true of business? Uh, This has always been true of a business, but just many people did not have this awareness. I have been preaching those ideas for 15 years Mm -hmm. and only recently I I see that people are are getting it more and more and they're realizing this is the, the only way to thrive and survive in the future. Now, everything uh, has now got a different dimension. With this pandemic, everything has been propelled to different ways of working, different ways of treating people in organizations as well. Organizations and leaders that are more humane, uh, that are more what I call level four and five of the management model. I will explain the levels in a minute. They will be able to survive and thrive in this new world that is emerging uh, in front of our eyes. So business as usual is not going to be an option. And now it is the time to operate in more humane ways, not just because it's a nice thing to do, but also from the economical point of view, there is lots and lots of evidence that companies that are more humane, what I call level four and five, they do better financially as well. And there's a lot of data around that I can mention for example, I worked with a lot of companies over years and the average profit increase was about 100% in a year or 200% in two years once they went through this big, what I call the big shift and, and moving from traditional ways of working based on command and control, standardization, specialization. And that all worked well in the first industrial revolution where efficiency and productivity were the key. But it is no way that that would work in the fourth industrial revolution and the post-pandemic world as well, where a lot of work will be knowledge-based and it is knowledge-based already now. And we know that uh, knowledge workers ignore corporate hierarchy. They have to be treated as associates not as subordinates, they can just withdraw cooperation. So in this new world that is emerging, it's going to be the only way to do well. And there's data from from other scholars as well. So for example, 
Professor Sisodia and the team, they investigated so-called firms of endearment, which are based on strategic alignment of all stakeholders and not just short-term profit maximization for shareholders. Mm -hmm. And they found out that within 15 years, those firms of endearment outperformed S&P 500 index by 1,050%. And then there was also uh, some other studies, for example, Fortune's 100 Best Companies to Work For, which are focused on pride and trust. They achieved 300% higher stock market returns than S&P 500 in five years and so on. Or ACO Technologies, 700% profit increase in seven years. So the average figure is around 100% within a year. So it's not a nice thing to have, but it's the only way to operate especially now, given what is going on with the economy and, and the whole world. I mean, Flatka, that's radical. To anyone hearing this, that sounds almost implausible. How do you, in such a short time frame especially, how does one achieve such a, a significant return and improvement in results? And you mentioned the term a big shift early on. Is this the pathway to that kind of radical transformation? Yes. Uh, when, I, when I talk about the big shift, I refer to the management shift or the shift from level three to level four of the five levels of the management shift framework. So perhaps I can very, very briefly explain yeah, those yeah. levels because I will keep referring to them <laughs> as we speak. So on the basis of many years of research into various theories and models of leadership development, adult ego development, learning and development, consciousness development, development. So I I pulled up a large number of theories and frameworks and models. I synthesized them through thematic analysis and I figured out that there are five levels that our individual mindset goes through and there is a corresponding organizational culture at each of those levels. And every level is characterized by specific thinking patterns, emotions, language used, leadership style, behavior, and organizational outcomes. We can't skip the levels. We can only go up one level at a time, but we can have pockets of different levels within the same organization. But here we are talking about a critical mass of employees, and it's very important where a leader is because culture is a reflection of a leader's consciousness. So when we have leaders at certain levels, it will largely determine the culture for an organization as well, and especially in time. I keep talking about the ripple effect of the mindset through culture and beyond organizational boundaries. So very, very briefly, I will explain the levels. So level one, the mindset is lifeless and culture is apathetic. People are too depressed to do anything. There's lots of fear and blame and and this is a not nice place to be. This is where we have bankruptcies and, and, and big scandals going on in corporations. So that is level one. Not much gets done. At level two, The mindset is reluctant and culture is stagnating. At that level, people do a minimum they can get away with just to get their paycheck. So they bring their body to work, but their heart and mind stay at home. And they take long lunch breaks, they sneak out for a workout, they dream about being somewhere else. And then at level three, the mindset is controlled and culture is orderly. At level three, we are micromanaged, we tick the boxes, we achieve KPIs, we do what we are told to do. But we have low levels of engagement, low levels of passion for work, low levels of productivity, and that has impact on on revenues and profit. 
Now, levels one, two, three, this is where majority of organizations have been, and this is traditional management and leadership. I would say about 85% or so organizations, but we see a lot of problems from declining productivity engagement to problems even where bad management and leadership cost people's lives, as explained by Professor Jeffrey Pfeffer in his book, Dying for a Paycheck showing that, for example, in China alone, about 1 million people die per year because of exhaustions and stress, which is caused by work-related stress and bad management and leadership. So these are the first three levels. And then everything changes. Something magic happens where leaders, employees, companies move from level three to level four. So that is the big shift or the management shift. So at level four, we have enthusiastic mindset and collaborative culture. And keywords are trust, transparency, purpose, collaboration, having fun working, giving back to the society. At that level, we get a step change increase in performance, innovation, engagement, and profit. Occasionally, we can reach level five, where mindset is limitless and culture is unbounded. And at that level, we have highly innovative teams working day and night on some amazing innovations for humanity. Here, we are driven by our love for humanity and we want to solve big problems such as pollution, hunger, producing clean air, clean food, dealing with health pandemics and so on. So that is level five. So we can't be there all the time. We would burn out. So objective is to be at level four, occasionally go to that innovative, very intense level five mode. If we are at level four, if we slip down temporarily, because we may go through some difficulties, we bounce back quickly and easily to level four, which is our default level for the mindset and correspondingly for organizational culture as well. Mm-hmm. So this dramatic step change that you speak about from level three to level four, this is what we were mentioning earlier when we talk about organizations stepping into this 100% increase in results. That's the same space we're talking about. So, I mean, I I remember there's a model spiral dynamics. I think you and I have chatted about it before. And Claire Graves, who originally established that model, had this great phrase for describing the move from tier one to tier two, which was a momentous leap in meaning. And it really sounds like you're describing something similar here. It's the business objectives change, the way you work changes. Almost everything shifts in the organization. Is that right? That's right. And the spiral dynamics is one of the many models that I looked at and and used to Mm. map the five-level management shift model. Yes, everything changes because as we move from levels one to two to three, we get more of the same. And this is horizontal development. And when we jump this big hurdle from level three to level four, this becomes a vertical development. Mm. It's a completely different mindset. And the language changes. So at level three, the keywords are me, mine. We're led by big leaders, charismatic leaders with big egos. That is level three. But then as we move to level four, everything changes. It's, all, it's becoming all about us and we mm. and team and then the world. So, so this is how it ripples out from individuals to teams to organization, and then to the whole world. At level five, we want to change the world, make it Mm -hmm. a better place. At level four, we work as teams, we are very purposeful, and then we do better as organization, better as individuals. We are happier, healthier as well, because there is less stress and absenteeism as well. We have fun working, we see this big purpose, so everything changes. Mm -hmm. 
You use the word mindset there. That's what's really critical here. Your book, Humane Capital, if, if I compare what I understand is the difference between humane capital and the management shift, which maps out a very constructive and practical way to move through these levels. Humane capital is really about that mindset, isn't it? It's about really establishing the worldview that allows one to make these transitions in a very fundamental and practical way. Yes. Well, the management shift, that is my life's work. Mm. Over 25 years of my work, and I have to emphasize, I have a very interdisciplinary background. I started a career as a computer scientist. Then about 15 years ago, I became behavioral scientist because of my passion for people and passion to help people and develop leaders and so on. So the management shift is the heart of the big, big shift. And that, that is one of the main reasons why I got all the, the awards for that work is because other scholars have been talking about the why, why we need to shift from old to new ways of working, which are more humanized. They talk about the what, what needs to be done, but the actual how, how to do this in practice was missing. So, so this is what I developed. First, I developed this five-level model, which I just explained. I was using this to help C-level executives through one-to-one coaching to move from level three to level four. And then about 10 years or so, I had another epiphany. And I love big ideas. And I love even more when I can make them happen in reality. I'm not a traditional academic that would work on theoretical only um, models and frameworks. I always want to create something that somebody can use in the real world of business to make it better, to improve something and to create better, happier and more purposeful workplaces. So for me, it was about how do I create a tool that can help not just entire organization to shift to level four, but to help many organizations to shift to level four at the same time. So I went back to my research and I did a lot of more research. And uh, as I mentioned, I have very interdisciplinary background, but I studied many other disciplines from psychology, neuroscience, OB, economics, and so on. So I pulled together all my knowledge and and I did additional research, I looked into uh, thousands of references, hundreds of, of interviews and dozens of case studies. I used to supervise a lot of PhD students. So I had a lot of data. I pulled everything together and I created a framework with around 150 factors that drive innovation, value creation, performance, profit in companies. I grouped that in six areas and then I created an online diagnostic tool, which is known as Six Box Leadership Diagnostic Tool, which can then measure hidden strengths and weaknesses in the area of culture, relationships, how well people work together, individuals, their mindset drive, motivation, strategy, how it gets developed and executed, systems, how the work gets done, and resources. So this is the how. This is like an MRI. So we see the hidden strengths and weaknesses. And then I worked with dozens of organizations to help them to diagnose those issues. And then we would prescribe the medicine through action planning. So this is all within the management shift area. And then about five, six years ago, after I launched the management shift and my whole life has changed, I became a part-time professor. I launched my company. I've been speaking everywhere, doing lots of keynote talks. And then um, after that, I, I decided that it would be really, really great to interview real leaders, CEOs who have implemented the big shift or who have been helping others to go through this big shift. So I wanted to capture their mindset, but also strategies. 
uh, I interviewed 58 leaders. I identified 35 case studies in the Humane Capital book. And then I pulled out 200 strategies, 50 per sector, that those leaders have used to help this big shift from level three to level four. I grouped them per sector. So we have 50 strategies in called public sector, then corporates, SMEs, and nonprofit. And then I used Envivo software to analyze all the transcripts. And you're talking about over 272,000 words of transcripts. So I analyzed it. I've read everything several times, but then I used software to analyze this well. And then out of all that came the eight key pillars for humanizing organizations. So what are the key elements, key building blocks for creating more humane organizations? And the number one pillar is the mindset. So this, this was the long, that was the long answer to your question. But through that research, it has confirmed that level four mindset is the number one building block for humane organizations. I'm fascinated by that because, you know, we're speaking about this level four organization, which, you know, to, to just feedback some of the language that you've used is an organization that really has purpose, that is able to do good. It's this powerful force in society and in the world, a positive force, which is really at the heart of the best positive potential of organizations this is what organizations have always had the potential to be. And there's this very strong collective sense there. It's about the us, it's about the we, and not just within the organization, it's about the bigger we as well. It's about the we of the, of the global population population, about society, etc. At the same time, though, as you mentioned earlier, the primary impact in that culture comes from the leader. And the leader very often sets the tone for that culture. I think the words you use were the consciousness of that leader sets the tone for that culture. So there's this strong interplay of the collective and the individual. And I know one of your one of the elements in your the six box leadership model is culture, relationships and individuals. Those three interplay strongly together. But if we can't skip a level and we have a leader, for example, who isn't at, let's call it a level four level of consciousness, who doesn't necessarily see the world this way, how do you begin to implement change? Well, what we need to do, we need to help this leader to see the new horizons. The metaphor I use is that leaders that are firmly stuck at level three, it's like having the brick wall in front of their eyes. Mm -hmm. And with this awareness of the possibilities of operating from level four mindset or consciousness, we are then creating the cracks in the wall so the light comes through. So this mm -hmm. is the metaphor I like to use. Mm -hmm. And people also ask me, how do people find you? How do you, how do you get in touch with clients? And well, people find me through recommendations or they hear me speaking at events. But the, the short answer is, through inspiration or desperation. So there are those leaders that can see the horizons of level four. They're doing quite well, but they want to do even better on a long-term basis and they want to be even a bigger force for the good in the society and they want to establish, really anchor themselves at this good place. They are open to grow even further and so on. And they want to make an impact on wider society, not just make profit on a short-term basis. So... That is one category. And then the other category is desperation. So leaders, they're probably stuck at level three, but they realize that they either do something differently or they will not be around anymore as, as an organization. And this is exactly what almost all interviewees told me who are interviewed for Humane Capital book. They said, 
if they did not go through these big shifts, many of them went through it years ago, before even I wrote the book, they said they would not be around anymore. They would not have survived as an organization. And when I asked them about the value for this big shift, some of them gave me some monetary uh, values, uh, some numbers, such as, oh, you get 10 extra percent of the value of an organization, or you get extra 15 to 25 percent of revenue, or you just get extra millions or billions of pounds <laughs> or dollars or euros. But they also gave me qualitative like human benefits, saying it's a difference between life and death. It's a difference between a mere existence and true happiness. And that is priceless. And some of them said, there is no price for magic. (laughs) (laughs) Magic. I'm careful not to create a a sense of a hierarchy here. When we're speaking about individuals, the sense that someone who is operating from this kind of level four worldview is in some way superior or preferable to someone who's operating with a more level three level of priorities and worldview. These are just different ways of seeing the world, aren't they? And each of them has positive and negative benefits, certain pitfalls you need to watch out for, etc. But what you mentioned there, that kind of tension where people find themselves at where they know that something's not working, they know they need to try something new, but they're just not sure exactly what it is. Do you find when you meet people at that place that the proposition that stopping current view of the world and of business and instead focusing on people in a fundamentally human way as the primary motivation in operating and making decisions within your business is going to still lead to financially positive outcomes, is still going to lead to sustainable business. Is that a hard sell? Because I can think of many people I've met who very justifiably hear that proposition and say, well, you know, that is radical, that is new, but there's no way that's going to lead to a more profitable business. And your evidence suggests fundamentally the opposite. So from your experience, what is it like to having that conversation with people who have those, I suppose, very justified from their experience reservations about this big shift? First of all, I can just give them the data. The management book is full of data, full of research uh, from, from other scholars, from different global surveys. So I pulled a lot of data together from from my research and from my, my experience and so on. And then humane capital goes even step further because there's evidence from real leaders who have done this transformation, who have went through the big shift, and they were telling me about the impact it has had on not just on the business, but on themselves as human beings. There is so much data and I try to pull together a lot of different sources saying, well, it's not just me saying that. This is all backed up by research evidence. Mm-hmm. So it's not something pulled out of thin air. There is data, there's evidence, statistics, it's research, it's all there. I've just been pulling it together for many, many years, plus doing my own empirical research, testing the hypothesis and observations and so on. And yes, you're right, there are positives and negatives over every level, but the lower we load, there are more negatives and less positives mm-hmm. and, and the other way around when we go to higher levels. One of the negatives at high level, for example, level five, we can get burned out because then we get so absorbed in changing the world, we can neglect some other issues in our lives. I've been there myself, I have to say sometimes. (laughs) 
So we have all the levels inside us. So if somebody is at level four, they have level three, two and one in them and they can slip down if they have some difficulties or they hear some bad news, but they bounce back quickly and easily to the highest level of their awareness, of their consciousness or the, or the mindset. It's like the bungee jumping. So they're touched and they're touched to that highest level. So they slip down, but they bounce back once they reach this, this particular level. And yes, sometimes we need elements of level three as well, although we can see pockets of different levels within the same organization. So for example, I worked with a US-based company producing um, components for electronics industry. The CEO was level four. Overall, the culture was level four. R&D was five. Very, very relaxed, experimenting with ideas. Anything goes. Uh, even the clothes they, they wore were, were different, not ties and suits and so on. But the production department was level three to ensure quality. So in some businesses, it's about deciding what really needs some element of control. So for example, I would not tell to air traffic controllers, just experiment with ideas, let go of rules and regulations. So when we talk about safety, security, compliance, we still need some elements of level three. But especially when we need innovation, we need level four, level five. And we know that innovation can happen at any level. And the people at lower levels that interact with customers have more knowledge about how to improve certain services to meet customers' needs in a better way. In that case, we really need level four so that people can make, for example, decisions on the basis of their knowledge and insights, not on the basis of their position in organizational hierarchy. Mm -hmm. In what you're describing there, there's this very clear need for senior leaders, especially in organization, to be able to see the different pockets of the organization with this lens. And as you were describing earlier, you know, when you've met people in level three, it's very much as if there's a, a kind of a container around that blocks some angles of a worldview that get opened up when you move into a kind of a more level four perspective. So what I'm hearing is that senior leaders really need to have that elevated perspective, that kind of level four perspective, even if not the whole organization is operating in that way or from that level in order to be able to effectively manage, steer and lead the organization successfully. So at the same time, there's this very strong need for that individual leader to be able to enable themselves in order to reach that kind of worldview. So apart from data, talk me through some of the aspects of individual development that are key to this personal transformation for leaders in order to get to that level where they really can see, I suppose, more of the playing field, more of the landscape and further horizons, as you mentioned earlier? Yes, it's, it's a great question. And I, I have designed programs, for example, Individual Shift, which is about helping senior leaders to shift from level three to level four. I've been doing one-to-one -one coaching with senior leaders, helping them to go from level three to level four. And now I am also working with my team on e-learning accreditation for the management shift accredited coaches in collaboration with the Academy of, of uh, Executive Coaching so that executive coaches can be trained to, to know how to help leaders to shift from level three to level four. Mm -hmm. the, the basic principle here is understanding how the conscious and subconscious mind works. And the whole process of the big shift, I am mapped, for example, to Theory U, Otto Sharman Theory mm -hmm. U as well. Mm -hmm. So very briefly, I will explain the process. So as we're moving towards the bottom level of the Theory U, it's about letting go consciously of the old behavior. So the leaders need to be aware consciously 
okay, what I said now, what I did now, what I'm thinking now that it is level three. So it's consciously releasing that old patterns of thinking, speaking, behaving, acting, and so on. So just being mindful and letting go of that. And then once we reach the first half of the you, where we really, really connect with our inner wisdom and also our really desire to start learning new behavior, new thinking, new language of, of level four, there has to be some time where we have to make a conscious effort. So, so we can ask ourselves, so what would a level four leader think, say, and do now? And then really do it at the conscious level. And once we repeat this for a number of weeks, after a while, we will create new neural connections in our brain. And this level four will become subconscious competence. It will mm -hmm. become a, a new normal, a new way of being and, and leading for a leader. Very, very briefly, it's the how a process works. So we have to let go of level three, thinking, behaving, feeling, and consciously. And then we have to consciously start practicing thinking from level four perspective. And then after a while, it becomes a new normal. It becomes embedded. We create these new neural connections in our brain. And it's the normal way of being and leading for mm. a person. So, I mean, in addition to that kind of transformative process, which is very, by its nature, very challenging, it needs to be very challenging. As you say, there's this, there's this real movement down into the difficult areas of transformation and then an emergence on the other side. And this is how all powerful and long-lasting change seems to work. That, as I say, is a, is a very challenging process, but it also teaches many capacities and faculties that you learn in that process. But it also requires many faculties and capacities to get you through that process. And in the times that we're living in currently, where there is so much uncertainty, so little predictability, so much ambiguity, you know, there seems to be very clear patterns emerging of organizations, perhaps individuals, organizations, and perhaps their leaders who are overwhelmed by the level and the intensity of the change perhaps to a degree paralyzed or perhaps, you know, contracting, organizations contracting quite negatively in the face of all this uncertainty and change. Yet there also seem to be clear examples of individuals and organizations that almost seem to be thriving in this context, not necessarily economically and financially yet, but these are not people and organizations who seem overwhelmed by fear and uncertainty. So is there a sense that these are organizations or individuals that have already started making these kind of transitions? Is that a marker of the difference in the landscape that we're seeing at the moment? I think so. And I think because of the situation we are experiencing now, we see a bigger polarity. Mm. So we see a more polarization at lower levels where people almost get paralyzed by fear and worry, which is understandable. In situations like this, we just focus now on the reptilian part of the brain, which is all about survival and just getting the basic needs met and so on. And then on the other end of the spectrum, there are organizations, leaders, individuals that are pivoting more towards levels four and five, seeing the big picture, seeing this as an opportunity to co-create a better world for humanity, to let go of all which didn't work and really figuring out, reflecting, planning, okay, what can we do differently once we get out of this and really create happier, more purposeful, healthier organizations and happier, healthier, more purposeful world as well. Hmm. One thing I just want to explain briefly is about the levels and why they're so important. 
because we know from neuroscience with our mirror neuron brain cells, we act like neural Wi-Fi. So we pick up the moods and emotions of people around us. So when we are at the lower level, it's like a negative vortex of energy. So the worse you get, the worse you get. Mm. On the other end of the spectrum, we spread positive ripples. The better it gets, the better it gets. That's why it's so important. And also with our heart energy, which creates a very powerful electromagnetic energy as well. We, we impact people around us and we have an impact on, on much wider communities and eventually humanities as well. And there's a research done, for example, by HeartMath Institute explaining what is happening with that heart energy so it's really about being mindful of our emotions and the words and really trying to focus on to go towards this higher end of spectrum rather than just go back to this fear and despair that unfortunately many people found themselves there is a way to get away from this uh, with a conscious decision having the awareness so this doesn't serve me it doesn't serve people around me it doesn't serve my organization or wider society we need to unite, we need to be compassionate and leaders, they have to be humane now more than ever to help to well, co-create this new world with humane organizations um, that will spread ripples widely. Mm. Yeah, I mean, if there's one takeaway from your book, for me, Vladka, it was, you know, the times we're living in strongly clarified the necessity for a new way of, of looking at the potential of people working together and what the potential impact of that can be. But what Humane Capital makes very clear is that this is something that's possible. This is not, you know, a, a touchy-feely dream that feels all lovey-dovey, but actually has no practical application. It's quite the opposite. So thank you very much for your time and your insights, Flutka. That was uh, enlightening and inspiring. And thank you for your work. Well, thank you for inviting me to, to do this podcast. Thank you. Thank you. Keep well. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this episode and would like to find out more information about our guest or the topics discussed in this conversation, please check the notes section of your podcast player. Please subscribe and make sure that you never miss another episode of Learning Rewired. Until next time, I'm your host, Evan Rees.